Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. Thanks, Michaela. And it's so good to be here. I don't get to, get to be here very often, and it's always just so cool because um, Dave and Becky and my, my family go way back to our early 20s, and when we, we moved from Lawrence to start a church in Manhattan together with the Diefendorfs, and we are still there, and I think City Life and our church, Bluemont, have a lot of similarities. Um, one is that every time I come here, I feel like there's so many people I don't know. It's like, man, it's just like, it's, it's, and I'm looking forward to meet, meeting more of you this morning. But uh, it's good to get a chance to come here. I just had a sense as we were worshiping that, wow, this is a good group of people. This is a group of people that are in the process. They're in the process of following Jesus and growing in the people God's called them to be and in the process of joining in God's activity in the world and his, the process he's doing of changing the world which oftentimes isn't as dramatic or not making the nightly news type things, is it, you know, but, it, it, but it's, it's important, but it's hidden. And it takes a certain special kind of people to see that and engage in that process. And I just sense that you guys are that kind of people, and uh, I'm excited to be here. So this, yeah, we're continuing on, as Michaela said, chapter 7 and 8. There's a, there's a lot, so yes, do the, the, the daily readings and life group. And we're going to try to hit some of the big themes this morning and go from there. I was, as I was looking at this, I was, one thing that I recently attempted to do this fall is there's another pastor in Manhattan who's a very, uh, very intelligent guy, and he planted another church in Manhattan about the same time we started. He and his wife have, I think, 11 children, so they've got a very big family. They homeschool them all, and this pastor is very good at the biblical languages, so Greek and Hebrew. And every two years, he teaches some of his kids one of those languages, and he's offered it up to others, other homeschool kids, um, and other pastors. And so this year it was Greek, and I was like, you know, I never really learned or learned at all biblical Greek. I sort of just, you know, when I need to, cheat and use the internet, and that's worked, worked pretty good. But I, I was intrigued, and I thought, man, I, man this would be good. Um, I think it'd be good for my brain, stretch me, and help me be better understand the Bible, and this would be good. So, but I was kind of on the fence. Should I do this? Should I not? So I said, well, I'm just going to do it. I can always, always drop out, although I've, I don't know if I've ever dropped out of anything in my life. So it's kind of like, when I say yes, it's like, I, 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 but I really was on the fence. I wasn't sure. So I started taking this class, and he would said, yeah, it's just an hour and a half once a week, and then about an hour and a half homework each week. So I thought, you know, I can do that. That's, that's doable. But I missed week two, and I found myself immediately behind in this class. And I was also having flashbacks to earlier language classes in my, ch- in my youth. And, but I had this feeling I hadn't had for a long time, and probably more than I've ever had before. I don't know if I can do this. Like, this is just, it became not, should I take this Greek class? But can I take this Greek class? And it wasn't just like I, I could do it, but do I have the space in my life to, for me to take this class and this be an okay thing? And literally, I'm sitting in class and I'm realizing, you know, I really am um, 
farsighted now. Like that, I, I, I reading these Greek alphabet. I can't even read it. I'm trying to see the t- table on the board and follow all these conjugations and all this stuff. And it was about week four when I, I finally got almost caught up. And then we started this new type of conjugations. Okay, we need to learn the word, the definite article the. And here are the 20 these you need to learn this week. And I came home. I was like, I just. I don't think I can, I, I don't think I can do this. I really don't think I can take this class and live the life that I'm supposed to live. And so I dropped out of Greek class. And that, that tension, that feeling of not just I, should I do something, but wanting to do something, but not being able to do something, that's the tension that Paul introduces to us in chapter 7 of, of Romans. And we're going to look most of chap- mostly chapter 8 this morning, but I'm starting in chapter 7. And in verse 18, Paul is writing. This is Paul, okay? He's like considered one of the most righteous, great Christian leaders. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees before he was a follower of Jesus. He's like got his stuff together. But this is what he says. I know that nothing good lives in me, verse 18, that is in my flesh. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Now, there have been, it's kind of odd to me, but commentators, people studying this passage, sometimes they really struggle with the fact that Paul wrote this. Because they're like, oh, Paul, he understood like, righteousness and who he was in Christ. And surely he didn't really struggle so much with sin. And I think there is an element that Paul is identifying with the rest of Israel and their history and their futility and the rest of humanity. But I think he doesn't have to get outside of himself because he's human like you and I are. And my experience is that everyone who reads this passage and is honest and has any sense of self-awareness, they're like, yeah, that's me. So if you don't feel like that's you, then I just said you're not honest and don't have any sense of self-awareness, I guess. <laughs> but I, that's, I think I'm willing to stand on that. That's just, that's the reality of our life. And I, I remember one of my first real times I saw God, sh- God show up in my life. I was a, I, my parents were believers. I began a relationship with, with God at a pretty early age. But I remember having this real issue with anger. And I found out just recently, the whole Enneagram personality type thing, I'm a, I'm a one apparently, and their deadly sin is anger. So I was like, okay, that came by that naturally. But I remember literally like being on top of my little sister and just being enraged and just wailing as hard as I could on her back. Just like, just overcome with this, this anger that would just take over. And I remember, like, even at a young age, like, I, I don't, why does this, like, why, I don't want to be like this, but there's nothing I can do. And I remember, that was one of my first sincere prayers. I remember saying, God, will you, like, change me? Will you take this away? And God did a real work in my life. Like, it was pretty dramatic and immediate that that type of rage was not an issue any longer. But it's not always so quick and dramatic, right? Like, there are the times where God does something in our life and it's big, but there are a lot of things. And I've, 
I think the older I get, the longer I walk with God, the more I realize there's a lot of crud in me that I, and it's more stuff like pride and condescension and selfishness and these attitudes that are like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't think I want to be like this. But it's just like so deep and the process of, that, of dealing with that has not been quick. It's just like slow process. And oftentimes it feels like, am I ever going to change? And my wife feels like, is he ever going to change? Like, what's going on? So that's, we all experience this reality of being under sin. And uh, Paul goes on in verse 21. He says, I've discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Inevitably. I love God's law with all my heart. Kind of like the true me. Inside of me, I love God's and His law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And there's so much there. Um, what a miserable person I am. But I, I love the end. He says, the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this morning we're talking about, the title of this message is, is Life Over Law. There's something about the law, and he goes into it there. The idea is that even God's law, even he's speaking about the Old Testament commandments, and God's law, these are good laws. They are what is right and wrong. But there's something about seeing what is right and how we should live, that when our broken, fallen humanity comes up against that, it rebels. And it actually makes us want to do wrong even more. And it shows us our wrong. And a lot of our, our culture and human cultures throughout history and our nature is to try to overcome. Like, we're in this battle, and it's good that we're in this battle because that's God's in the process of transforming us. But a lot of times we try to battle the, the law that sense of, I'm not doing enough, I need to do more, we try to battle that by doing more, by being gooder, by, you know, having a calendar, I'm going to go this many days without this sin, or I'm going to have a plan, I'm going to be self-motivated, and I, I bring my kids to Kansas City for soccer games, and I know there's a whole lot of this kind of just like moralistic, like measuring up, and I'm, I'm as good, and all the different ways that it plays out in our societies, and it's not just Kansas City, it's Manhattan and everywhere. But I love how it says, what shall set us free? It's not the law that sets us free from the law. It's not a law, but it's a person. It's Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so the gospel, this good news for everyone, is not about, okay, here's a better way to live. And if you just like work hard enough and try hard enough, and you can, you can pull yourself up to this higher way of living. But it's no. There is God and the person of Jesus brought away, brought his life. Not a law, but the life of God, the resurrection life of God into us to raise us up into something more. And so we go on in, uh, with that backdrop into, into chapter 8. In chapter 8, I, I, this is one of the most beloved scriptures in all of scripture. There are a lot of people who would say that this is the, the pinnacle of all of scripture. I don't know how I got the honor of talking about it, but it also feels like I got the short straw because it's like, there's, man, I, someone else should do a better job than this. But there's so much in here. Um, 
it's very memorized. Bach wrote a whole cantata about Romans 8. I actually kind of listened to it. I, I read that. I thought, oh, that's cool. And I had it playing while I was getting ready for this message. Maybe I, sh- I thought, maybe I should just play it for City Life, and that would be good. But it's, it's not in English, so that sort of you know, makes it a little harder to get the essence of Romans 8 when it's in Latin. But we're going we're gonna to just really read through sections of this chapter this morning, kind of excerpts, and hope the goal is to just like feast on the richness of this good news for everyone that's in Jesus, and to get a, get a sense of what that is so that we can, we can be transformed as we understand better and meditate on these truths. So chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You know, after the last chapter about how futile we are, you would have thought he would have said, therefore, there's now a whole lot of gloom and doom for us. That was like the natural outcome of where we're at. But no, he said, therefore, this is good news. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation. And it's important that we realize how radical that idea of no condemnation is. Because in our human condition, we live under a blanket of condemnation all the time. Externally, internally, we are hearing voices and feeling condemned about who we are and what we've done. And that is a powerful thing that's with us. It's hard to get away, very hard to get away from. And there are a lot of external voices to reinforce it. I, some of you know my oldest son, Adam. He's spent the last couple summers in Kansas City doing an internship, and he just started an MBA program at Purdue. And I was talking to him a couple days ago, and he said, yeah, there's some really cool like, leadership discussions in my classes this week. And we had this one guest come in, in our business ethics class, and he had been uh, a young, high-flying accountant. He worked for a big corporation, and early in his career, this corporation was doing a lot of things that weren't very ethical. And he kind of got swept up into it and was doing the same things, kind of cooking the books, changing things a little bit to make it look better. And during this time, he actually, I'm not sure all the timing of it, but he really felt convicted about what he was doing. And he actually went to the authorities and told them what was going on. And there was a whole case, and the company got in a lot of trouble. And he got in a lot of trouble. He ended up becoming a convicted felon through, the, through what he was doing. And so years through this whole process, he actually met Christ and became a Christian. He told the Purdue class this, which was, which was awesome. But years, so after that, he couldn't get a job. But his dad had a connection. Who needed, he mentioned, I need an accountant. So he said, well, I've got a son. Well, I couldn't afford him. He was making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in the early 2000s. I said, well, you might be surprised. And so he actually hired this guy for minimum wage, and he worked his way up, and he got another job, and he ended up working for another big corporation. Pretty, you know, in a period of a few years, did really well. Kind of things were looking good. And then he did a big, um, a big audit for a company they were working for. And two days before it was due, the company they were working for found out that he was a convicted felon, and they had failed to disclose that information to this company, which I guess that was something they needed to do. Because of that, they pulled, there was a half a million dollar 
audit that they were doing. They backed out of it two days before it was due. And this accounting company ended up having to pay a million dollars to somebody else to turn around an audit in two days. And so here this guy is like, wow. I mean, that condemnation for his past actions literally cost his company a million dollars. And it just hit me like, man, that is so real. How would, I, I would be really hard to live with. That would be hard to live with every day. And, but we all, at different levels, live with high-grade condemnation or low-grade guilt. There's this, this battle for, man, what have I done? Who am I? There's this constant voice of the enemy to, to pull us under. And it was so cool, though, that he said, you know, through this whole process, I actually, he lost his, his marriage through, um, through coming clean and everything that he lost. But he said, through that process, he met Christ, and he ended up starting a relationship with somebody else, and they ended up getting engaged. And when he got the, the day he got the guilty conviction from the court, his fiance was with him, and he said, we walked out of the courtroom, she was holding my hand right with me. And I thought, man, what a picture of the gospel, really, that there was a love that was greater than this condemnation that he had experienced before. And that's really what the gospel is. It's the love of God that comes, the life of God that comes that's greater than any, any condemnation. Um, going on in verse, verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. This, and Paul, in this whole chapter, he's very passionate about the good news for everyone, but he's also very precise and using very accurate theological words. And this, when he said sin offering, a sin offering in the Old Testament was not <clears throat> the offering that you made for a sin that you'd willfully committed, but it was the offering, the sacrifice that you made when you didn't know what the law was, but you broke it. Or when you unwillingly committed. When you unwillingly broke one of God's commands. And so, this isn't to say, and this, so this is saying Jesus is the sacrifice for the sins that you do when you don't want to do them, basically. How he set it up in chapter 7. Like, I don't want to do this, but I, but I do it anyway. It's not to say that we don't sin willingly. We all do plenty of that. But Paul is speaking to this, this power of sin that we've, we are born under and we live much of our lives under, saying Jesus became a sin offering for this sin that had power over us, even when we didn't want it to have that power. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So victory is won for us. But the reality is, for those of us who are believers, which is most of us, we have moments, hours, portions of our life where we're living in that realization of the victory and the life, the forgiveness that we have. And then there are, there's the other chunk of our life, right? Where we're not living in that awareness, where we're not experiencing that life. And so what's the, what's the key? How do we live out, how does that life overcome the law? in our lives on a moment-to-moment -moment basis? How can that be more and more of our regular experience? And he's, that's where he's going right here. This is because the victory is, is won. Life is won at the cross, what Jesus did for us. But our experience of it is contingent upon something we do. 
And he, he, he goes into it right here. In verse 5, he says this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh, to set the mind, okay, so this is it. What, what's the difference is what we set our mind on. If we set our mind on the flesh, that's our, human, our humanity apart from Christ. It's the part of us that's not yet transformed, the part that wants to live selfishly and for ourselves. When we're thinking about ourselves and our flesh and our mind is, is stuck there, it's death. But the mind's set on the Spirit, set on God, set on His Spirit, set on His life, set on the Messiah, set on the Gospel, is life and peace. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So setting our mind on the Spirit is what determines what we live in, what our experience is. So that's pretty helpful. So the rest of this chapter, Paul is unpacking the gospel more and more. He's basically saying, hey, this is, this some of the, this is what Jesus has done. This is who you are in Christ. This is what I want you to set your mind on. Set your mind on him and his, the inheritance you have in him. And as you set your mind on these truths, as you think about the gospel, the gospel is not just something we hear one time and we get saved, but it's something we must hear and set our mind on over and over and over and over and over again. And as we set our mind on it, we're transformed by it and we live in the life and we bring the life that God has for us. Um, <clears throat> so we're just gonna, we really want to just unpack this a little bit more. In verse 11, and Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living in you. So it's not us. It's not our law-abidingness. It's not our goodness. not our discipline. Our commitment, it's the Spirit of God living in us that brings life to us. As we set our mind on the Spirit, we experience that life more and more. Verse 15, he says, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. I want to just pull out kind of three themes in this chapter that are important parts of this good news for everyone that, that play, that it's how life over law plays out. And the first one is that the father adopts slaves of sin to be his own children. We were slaves of sin. We were under the power of sin. And God not only pays the price to redeem us, to buy us out, to purchase our freedom, but then he doesn't just say, okay, you're free now. Go live a life. But he says, no, I'm adopting you to be my own daughter or to be my own son. You're going to be part of my family. You're in. 
you're full, you went from being a slave under the power of the bad force, the slave of sin, to being in my family. You're my son. You're my daughter. And there's something about being in the family that you kind of bend the rules for your family members. You know? Like, it's not just this, like, legalistic, like, who did? You're going to, like, do everything you can to find a way to make it work for your family. That's, there's a part of us in that, that we're going to, like, we're, we're not, we, we, God's put that in us. And that's how we saw that even, it, it's kind of funny, but politically, with, if, if you're Joe Biden's son, then you might be able to get a job that pays you a couple million dollars a year, not because you're qualified for it, but because of that connection. And the same is true if you're President Trump's son. You know, there's, there are connections that if you're connected to a powerful family, then there, that goes a long ways. It's not just the law. There's something higher than law. Now, with God, it's not that he wink winks or overlooks the law. No, he fulfills the law completely in Jesus. He pays the price for our shortcomings. But there is this, this life, this, this family adoption that's so much greater. And that's how it is with us and God. It's not that when, when we, God's heart towards us is that in our futility and our failure, it's not that, oh man, I gotta, I gotta hold him accountable. Yes, he does. There is his holiness, but he's, fi- he's found a way, he's made a way in Christ. There's something greater, and that's bringing us into his family. Um, I'm gonna keep going on, because the second one is the one I really wanna, really wanna hit on this morning. In verse 17, he says this, if we are to share his glory... We must also share his suffering. Wait, I thought you were talking about life. Why are you talking about suffering? That's not what I'm looking for here. Uh, man, why, if we're to share his glory. Uh, we've been talking about this in this series that <clears throat> we are image bearers. And the gospel is not, just, not only about forgiving our sins so we can go to heaven when we die, but it's restoring us to being men and women who are reflecting the glory of God through our lives. That we are image bearers, and we, there's a, an honor and a glory to our lives that God has restored and is restoring to us in Jesus. And so, but to come into that, there's an element of suffering that God uses in this process. Um, I've got, I'm coaching a, a team of 9 and 10-year-old kids in soccer, and their biggest problem so far is listening. And we're doing better, but yesterday at our practice, I just started off by saying, okay, this is our top priority. If you don't listen, you will run. There will be a little suffering. And, you know, there was just a little bit of running, but that little bit of suffering was just enough that their listening got a whole lot better. (laughs) And we think that our suffering is because we've messed up because we're not good enough. Now, some of our suffering is that. We reap the consequences for our poor choices. But there's a lot of suffering that to us may feel insurmountable and huge, but it's just God is a good father, a good coach. This is his training process for working something into our life to make us become, the, it's working life into our life so we, we can become the people he wants us to become. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be re- revealed to us. There is a glory God is revealing to us 
and in us. And if we could understand that, that as intense as our suffering is, that if we really understood what God was doing, it would make it all worthwhile. The thing that God is doing in our life, seeking to do in our life, the life that he's bringing through the hardship is worth it. Verse 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And not only, the hardship is not only for us, but the whole creation, the whole broken world, and the spiritual powers, and we don't understand, but there is this picture of this world in bondage and futility to sin and that's come. And it is waiting for people to come into who God has made them to be. Because as we become those people, it brings freedom to the world around us. It brings economic blessing and transformation, the answers to social injustice and broken families and environmentalism and all this. Ultimately, it's people being set free from the power of sin and being transformed and then touching, the, shaping the life of the world around them. The creation is longing for that. And the world is like trying to figure out the answers, but really, it's us. It's what God is doing in his people that is the answer. And so the second part of, of, of chapter 8, that this life over law, is that we have to understand that the gospel, that God turns hardship into something more. Even the hard stuff. Jesus, before the resurrection, had to go to the cross. And it's not that we, it's his resurrection and cross that changes everything. But somehow he invites us and leads us into a similar process of death and resurrection. And over and over again, of, okay, I'm going to lead you. You've got my life. Now I'm going to work my character into you through some tough stuff. And as you press into me in that process, it's going to change you. And it's going to change the whole world. Um, the creation's waiting and longing expectation. If you can imagine this the early church in, in Rome who's getting this letter, as you, you've talked about, they're sitting probably in the poor part of town near the river, hearing this letter read to them uh, in a house church setting. They're a small, beleaguered church. Persecution is going on. They are it's kind of like, are we going to make it? And then they look out their door and up the hill and there's, there's Caesar Nero's palace, the, most, the center of power of the known world, the most powerful place in the whole world. And Paul says, they read that the creation's longing for the children and sons of God to be revealed through this process. You know, what's crazy is that it happened. That through the suffering and the persecution and all that those early believers went through, it turned that Roman Empire upside down. That the way they loved each other, the way they honored, husbands honored their wives, which was radical, the way they cared for the poor, the way this totally different type of community that was that the Christ community, it won the affections and the attention of the Roman Empire until the emperor became a Christian. And things were, were turned upside down. And the creation is longing for people to get a hold of this and to let it work out in their life. And it, it changes everything. Um, yeah, there's so much more we could say. It's, you know, I think sometimes we think that, well, I mean, okay, those were the early Christians. You know, they were, they were getting burned for being Christians. That's intense. I, 
obviously my life's not that intense, and it's true. But there is a very real uh, intensity of the suffering that we go through. And I remember reading, and some of you have probably read the book The Heavenly Man, which was about Brother Yoon, who was a leader in the Chinese underground house church in the 80s and the 90s when believers were, were being persecuted. And the, the saying was, to go to prison was, was, was their seminary. And Brother Yoon was multiple times arrested, interrogated, tortured, thrown in prison for years. And he tells about these hardships, and he tells about how, how God met him in those places. And there was a, despite all the, it was very tough, but there was a joy and a sense of purpose in the midst of all that. And then as the story went on, or his life story, God ended up leaving, leading him out of China, and he came to the West. And one of the things that stood out to me the most in this book is he said, you know, the stuff that I experienced in America, in the West, was actually more difficult for me emotionally than what I experienced in China. The, the results of materialism and complacency and the division that I experienced in the church, like, that was much more harder for me to process than what I experienced in, in China. Like, wow, maybe there's a reason, like depression and anxiety, like these are very real forces. There's, there is an intensity to the battle that we find ourselves in. And so that's, but, but there is a purpose in that. God is willing and ready to meet, he meets us in that place and he, he brings life. Um, in verse, let's move along to um, verse 28. This is a classic verse. We read, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things. This is the context. All the tough stuff. And, you know, that's, <clears throat> that's easier to say in theory than in reality. But all, the good, all, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Hey, one of the toughest stuff our family's gone through the last five and a half years, five and a half years ago, our our ninth grade daughter, who was the picture of health and vibrancy, she suddenly got sick. And it was just, and it, and it was for four years, three and a half years, we couldn't figure out what was going on. She was in pain all the time, nausea, uh, brain fog, just exhausted, fatigued. And that was I mean, very difficult for her and also pretty difficult for for the rest of our family. And I think it's been it's one of the toughest things that my wife and I have gone through. And, but in the, through this process, she finally got diagnosed with this thing called amplified pain syndrome. And basically, part of the, the, the prognosis for dealing with it is you have to just like press into the pain and not let it affect you and live normally, which is easier said than done. And, but it's, it is amazing how much my heart, I mean, I, my wife and I, like, it's amazing how much God has done in our hearts through this process. And our daughter, I'm just amazed when I look at her, like, wow, just the, the, her relationship with God as at a place of, of depth that it would not be if she hadn't gone through this. The stuff that she has to offer other people is at a place that it would not be if she hadn't gone through these things. Her faith and her just, her resilience and tenacity and her, her she's, I mean, it's, she's still, I mean, it, every day is a battle. But there's, there's progress being made. But it's, it's intense. And I look at, man, there's my wife and I, we have a lot more tenderness than we would have had and we had before. We, we have a lot more compassion for people 
than we had before. There's this, through this process of the tough stuff, there's God working something into our soul that is really worth it. You know, it really is worth it. I wouldn't have chosen the path, but it, it really is worth it. And God has a purpose in these things to bring something good through it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is doing something. He's fashioning us to become the people that we were meant to be. And if there's nothing else you get this morning, I want you to get the idea that to press in, that there is life in God, to press into the hard stuff. And not just the, not, I mean, that hard stuff may be involving a health challenge or relationship difficulty, but also some of the hard stuff is just right here. That pride, my issues, my, my lust, my temptations, that, that battle within, that, man, I do what I don't want to do. It's worth engaging in that battle to be transformed, to come into something more. Whatever that thing is in your life, it is worth looking to God and saying, God, there's more, and I'm not going to settle for this. I believe that you have something more for me, and I want to become that person. I want to engage in the process of discipleship. I want to engage in the process of letting people speak into my life and let, mostly letting your word speak into my life and re retraining my brain and retraining my lifestyle and letting you transform me because that's how I become the person you've made me to be. And the world is, I need to be that person. My family needs to be that person. My friends need to be that person. Need me to be that person. The world is waiting for those kind of people to come. And so it's, it can be intense, but it's worth it. And there is life to bring that process about in our, in our lives. All right, he ends this chapter. Um, the, last, the last aspect of this, this gospel we want to hit on this morning is that Christ's love for us withstands everything, including condemnation. His love for us, no matter what's going on, no matter what we've done, no matter what voices we hear, no matter who says what about us, his love is greater than that. In verse 31, we read, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He'll give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. It's God who says, yeah, you're right. You're, you're as if you have not sinned. I declare you right. It's God who does that. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God 
that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And those of us who have been walking with God for any length of time, we've had, there, we've had and we have times of revelation of this. Yeah, God, you are for me. Who can be against me? Nothing can separate me from your love. It doesn't matter what I think, how I feel, what my circumstances are. God, you are with me. Your, your gospel is changing me and it's changing the world. And that's real. But we have, I, I've got, I live in, in Manhattan. It's a, near Fort Riley. We have a lot of military um, personnel in our community. A lot of people dealing with PTSD. I've got a, I've got a neighbor who is an officer in the, is a career officer, or he did 20 years in the Army. And his time in Iraq, he spent a couple stints, left him with PTSD. And he, the, what happens with PTSD is that even though you're away from the traumatic environment, you're no longer in the Iraq war, but internally, you're still there. You're still thinking that that unexpected noise, like that's, that's danger. You know, he, my neighbor hates the 4th of July. You know, for him it's not like, oh yeah, we're celebrating America's freedom and yeah, our victories. No, he's hearing, he's hearing IEDs go off. He's, he's hearing explosions. He's thinking about his men that he's lost. And even though he knows, okay, no, these are fireworks, 4th of July, it's coming, this is what it means, still the, like, the emotional connection to those experiences is so deep. And that's how we, we are. There's this, okay, we, on one level we know what's true. We know the freedom and the victory and the life that we have. And Jesus is one and he's winning. But life comes at us and trauma and relational difficulties and financial difficulties and the stuff we're believing for and we're not seeing it happen for our families or for our church or for our city or our business, whatever it is. It's, it's like, okay, I, I mean, I, I know, but yet it doesn't feel like that. And this process of transformation is it's, it's setting our mind on, no, God, this is your truth. That, that doesn't mean, the, the hardship doesn't mean God's against me. It means God's for me. God is with me in this, and he's doing something good. And so, man, the good news is that God is transforming us and helping us to set our mind on him. And so, you know, this morning, you know, we're all in different places. And, you know, maybe, maybe you're here today and, where you're at is you need to come out from the power of sin. Maybe you've never come out from being a slave to sin, and God's inviting you to come into the freedom of being his son or daughter, to be adopted into his family. You know, maybe, maybe it's you need to set your mind on the adoption you've received. Say, no, I'm not a slave. I'm a, I'm a daughter. I'm a son. This is my family. That's a truth for me to chew on and meditate on and believe in, set my mind on. Maybe God is helping you to, to see that he's bringing something out of your suffering out of the hardship. That when the, when the tough things happen or the emotions of the tough stuff that you're going through hits and that that is your, it's okay God, I'm, that means actually you are working this for a greater good. And you're with me in it. You are doing something great in this. Your life is prevailing. Oh God, thank you for what you're doing. I believe that. You know, for all of us, it's coming out of the condemnation of, of, of failing to live under the law. And realizing, no, God, I live under your life, under what you've done for me in Christ. I just want to pray for us.
And let's just trust God this morning to help bring us into this even more. God, thank you. Thank you that your life is greater than sin, death, futility, the law. Thank you for this good news. Thank you that it's not dependent on what's, what, our, what our flesh tells us. That's dependent upon you. And Lord, I just trust, trust you this morning that you're going to continue to lead us into a greater place of understanding this, of understanding your good news deep in our heart, and then setting our mind on, on that, setting our mind on the Spirit, not on the flesh. Lord, I pray for people here this morning, even just for specific areas of our lives where there's a seemingly insurmountable deal going on, especially those that are internal. Lord, we set our mind on you and we say, Lord, you are able, you have won the victory and you're bringing the victory about in our lives. We thank you for it. Lord, we thank you for the way that you're doing that and that our engagement with this brings freedom to us and to others. Lord, do what you want to do in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org. We'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.